Mars shakes, the galaxy cracks, Fermilab joins the community, Apple asks for an intervention, and we imagine failure on tonight's Iron Sysadmin podcast, episode 60. Alright folks, welcome to tonight's episode. I'm your host Nate, and I'm joined tonight by two of our three co-hosts, Charles and Jason. Say goodnight folks. Goodnight folks. Or good evening perhaps. Hey, good <laughs> evening. We, we should do the show first. Yeah, no, oh, show's oh, over. Sorry. Good night I folks. Was, I thought we were done. <laughs> All done. All right. It's been a bit of a rush tonight to get the show going. So I'm glad we're finally on the air. <laughs> All right. So, top of the news tonight. So, who remembers the Distro Wars? I mean, I guess they're not quite over, right? Wait, you mean the religious uh, uh, argument that's going on eternally? Eternally, right. My distribution is better than yours. Well,. I certainly remember when it felt a bit more immediate. Wow. Yeah, sure. So you might remember that there's a distribution uh, based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux called Scientific Linux. Well, according to Beta News, they're calling it quits with version 8 of RHEL. So instead of packaging their own spin of uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux called Scientific Linux, they're just going to use CentOS. To be honest, I never really understood why they didn't to begin with. Um, CentOS is a fine distribution. I, I never really understood the purpose of Scientific Linux. Uh, either, either of you ever had any uh, experience with it? No. I remember I that. I can remember that there was some instability in the CentOS community a couple of years ago. Maybe that was part of the reason. I mean, a couple of years ago. This this is like fifteen years, isn't it? Yeah. Quite a while. Well, I mean, CentOS is now part of officially part of the Red Hat family. So mm -hmm. I guess you've got a little bit more support there. But I, I mean, so Scientific was a, it wasn't just a respin of RHEL, was it? I, I don't know what, I don't know what was was really different about it. I mean, mm -hmm. if it was just a respin, then yeah, CentOS should be fine. The way I understand um, Scientific Linux is it's, it's more than just a spin. Um, it had packages added to help with research computing. And you know, scientificy things. Um, I don't. I don't have like a, a package list or a diff or something in front of me. But basically, there were certain tweaks and tunes and packages added that were supposed to make it better for you know, like high performance computing stuff like that. Um, but I guess they're just going to roll that into CentOS or at least try to get it pushed into CentOS. Um, I mean, I, I knowing what I know about Linux distros. Um, it just makes sense, right? Why, 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 man why maintain your own branch of a distribution when you could simply add on to one that is very similar? You know? Yeah, and I wonder if I wonder if CentOS has pledged to to sort of build in those scientific uh, utilities that they're using. 
that would actually be smart. And then have like an extra, you, you know, having you install, you can have that package list of, yeah. I want to install these things, you know, just have a scientific button. Yeah, right. Maybe it's just a package set you can add. And that's really, I mean, I could be way oversimplifying this, but that's the way I understood scientific Linux. That it was simply, you know, packages added to RHEL or to CentOS. Um, right. So, yeah. Um, I, I can say that I have run across how-tos online for how to get a certain thing running, and uh, they've been based on scientific Linux. And the the directions have been interchangeable with any other uh, RPM based, rel based um, distribution of the same version set. So, you know, I don't know. I it it certainly seemed like it was just another spin of rel, and it seems like we're running short on those. I, I don't know. Are there any aside from CentOS at this point? Of of rel uh, variants, rel based distros. Um, wasn't there? Uh... Uh, white, what was it? White, it wasn't White Hat Linux. It was uh, White Box. White Box. I don't know if that's still out there. Um, I thought I looked and, into this a couple years ago and they had gone away. Oh, I don't know. White Box Enterprise Linux. There's a Wikipedia entry. Um, SUSE used to be, I mean, it's, it's RPM based. It was based on RHEL yeah. to begin with, but I don't think it's a true respin. Wow. It looks like White Box may have gone away at version 4. Now I'm curious. White Box Enterprise Linux. Yep. 2007 was the last release of White Box Enterprise Linux. It was uh, based on RHEL 4, and it's gone. I ran White Box for a little while. That's why I remember the name. So, yeah, uh, Scientific Linux is going away. The article's in the show notes if you want to read more about it. Uh, they talk a little bit about why, but it's a pretty short article. Basically... Sorry, guys, we're going to use CentOS. All right, this one's more science than, uh, than anything. It's from the Scientific American website. They've measured the first Mars quake on, well, Mars. I thought this was kind of cool, mainly because space is cool and Mars is cool, right? Am I wrong? Mars is cool. Well, right until they invade us, kill us all. Mars attacks! Yes, these things happen. It's okay, you just play terrible music and they all explode, right? Isn't that how that worked? Something like that. Yeah, so uh, the article goes into a little more detail, but basically they're not sure if this was an actual, like, plain old seismic event that came from the planet itself, or if something had struck Mars, like a meteorite or something. Uh, and they also said it was very mild. Um, they're... They're comparing it to moonquakes that were detected in the 60s and 70s with the Apollo astronauts. I didn't know that was a thing. Did you guys know that uh, the moon had uh, moonquakes? No, I not no, I. I. I had no idea until now. <clears throat> so yeah, Mars quakes, they're a thing. It was detected by the, uh, the InSight rover. Is that a rover? Lander. So, neat stuff. I mean, I, I guess I sort of expected that Mars would have quakes in a similar way to any other planet. But uh, I guess you never know, right? Martians, All right. They're just like us. They're just like us. Exactly. 
They even have earthquakes or Marsquakes. It is an odd word. I guess we we've all assumed for so long. Earthquake is an earthquake, right? When you're not I don't know. I mean, um, I think Arthur C. Clarke wrote a short story about a moonquake, so I feel like I knew they were different. Yeah, well, you know, I guess you're just more cultured than me, huh, Charles? Not surprising. No, oh, man, you said it, not me. Um, <laughs> it's not surprising. All right, this one should get us a little more meat here. Uh, Tim Cook is now uh, on the record saying that technology needs to be regulated. No oversight has led to great damage to society. Uh, I, I want you guys to give me a little bit of conjecture. Who do you think they were taking a pot shot at? Who do you think he was taking a pot shot at when he said that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you don't want to be Facebook in this situation. Yeah, or Google, You'd I like would say. Be, you want to position yourself as anything else. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. Right. So, uh, basically, uh, the article goes on to explain that uh, Tim Cook believes that technology has gone astray and no government oversight has uh, led to companies abusing the, the power they have in our pockets. Um, I can't say I disagree. I'm also not sure that government regulation is the answer, but I also don't know that I have a better answer. I think that in 30 years, we will look back on the fact that we were able to do our jobs without having a license and be kind of puzzled that that went on as long as it did. Um, yeah. You know, just like the, not even anything really onerous, but just kind of like a basic, you know, like with engineers, lawyers, you know, just a basic professional code of conduct, you know, like the yeah, bare minimum. I, I don't think it goes as far as requiring a license. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, these sorts of things are, are sort of, they come as you evolve. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it's the stepping stones. Um, I mean, he, he mentions, he mentions GDPR here and, you know, when, when GDPR first was being bandied about, or when I first started hearing about it being bandied about, um, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of FUD about GDPR. Um, and it's not, remotely perfect and it's got major issues here and there but it is definitely a step in the right direction um i think in some in some cases it's it's absolutely amazing that we didn't have that to begin with yeah and that the u.s <clears throat> continues to fight against this sort of stuff um and on the other hand some of it is a little overreaching um, yeah so i mean he you know tim cook at least in the article it says that he compares this to gdpr and he says that yeah. GDPR is not ideal, but it's a step in the right direction. And again, I don't know that I disagree. Um, I don't know. I've always felt that government regulation is a difficult thing to uh, impose without overstepping. You know what I mean? In, in any case. So you overstep and then you course correct. Or you don't well, and, accident, and accidentally kill the industry. I mean, right. That's, well, that's the problem. That's the problem, but, right? So I, I, yeah. I think I think the very reason that people are fighting against this, or at least that the U.S. is opposing this sort of thing, is because of free industry. Right? They, they feel like oh. it's, it's going to trample free industry. But on the other side, free industry, the free market, is, is just completely obliterating our privacy, right? So 
where's the happy medium? Is there a happy medium? You know, and how so do the, we how do we find it without without causing a bunch of trouble in the meantime? The the other argument against regulation that I've seen bandied about is um when you add something like regulation to this, um, so take Facebook for instance. If we start regulating social networks, um, the ability for Joe Blow to start a company in his garage as a social network becomes increasingly difficult. Yeah, um, we we had this same discussion about GDPR we, we, not long ago. Yeah, you we, and I. And we hit on that. It does create a barrier to entry. It does right. increase structural costs. May, but that's you know maybe we just say but that's the result of the industry becoming more mature. Um, right. We don't let any random person start a bank because we decided that they're... Oh, okay. Um, in general, we don't let any random person start anything that is regulated as a bank because we, we discovered that that had potentially really bad consequences. We accepted you know, there might be some risk for loss, loss of innovation in the banking industry, but yeah. the... On the, on the other side, we people don't lose their life savings overnight. So the, the problem when you apply that to IT is there's so much possibility for innovation in IT. And that's part of what has made it such an exciting field for so long, right? So anybody could, theoretically, right now, be hacking away on their laptop designing a Facebook killer. You know, an, an awesomely privacy-aware social network. Or they could be building, you know, something horrible, like, um, uh, what's that? Was it Jabber? Not Jabber. Gab. Gab. They could be designing Gab, <laughs> right? Right. So, I mean, that's, that's, the, that's two sides of that coin. It's, it's a, tough, yeah. a tough thing to, to just accept regulation, well, right? But the, here's the problem. Nobody's innovating their way toward better privacy protections. Yes. That is... People that's, don't actually want that. That's the problem. But but they need the to have these things. Um, and you, in this sense, you could look at government regulation essentially last resort. That is, if the tech companies could clean this up, they would have. They haven't either because they can't, won't, whatever. It, the, the reason doesn't actually matter at this point. The fact that they haven't is the problem. Yeah. yeah. And so you say, well, if we lose a little bit of innovation in the tech field, well, that's unfortunate, but that's a theoretical cost that you set against the very real damage that's being done. Right. Done. And we're talking we're talking about user rights and privacy. We're not talking about um, like a wholesale regulation of the IT industry on everything they do. It's still more than possible to innovate. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to be careful when you start stepping into the user user rights privacy arena if if regulation goes through but the other the other problem that I potentially see with regulation and 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 you very much see this in like the telephone industry because um, which seems to be happening again um, the barrier to entry is so high you don't have any new players right and as a result you end up with all of the big players consolidating and you end up with effectively one or two monopolies i mean you've got this yeah. in cable you've got this in, t in telephony um and and i don't know what the answer to that is i mean breaking up ma bell worked for a short period of time but um looks like she's pulling herself back together again so yeah i i know. have i approached this years ago um 
I worked at a little web host, and we had some point-to-point T1 connectivity where we were basically providing internet service to a certain number of customers. They would get a, a T1 between them and us, and then we would get them to the internet. And it was a very small-scale thing. And we had this idea that maybe that might be a fun thing and a profitable thing to expand on. Try to get into that market. When, you know, it's like, how how can you run your own network without just paying all of the big providers all the money? Right. right. It's almost impossible nowadays. Unless you're going to go out and set up your own polls, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, and it's... It's not even nowadays. I mean, I, I helped run a very successful dial-up business yeah. um, with with thousands of customers. And it went out of business specifically because once technology hit the point where it was DSL and cable, it was... You couldn't get into it. Virtually... I mean, we could, we could absolutely sell, resell, I'm sorry, resell DSL connections. Yeah. We could also resell cable connections. And in both of those cases, it was on the competitors' lines. Yep. And there was a, a pretty distinct markup. So, where you may pay twenty bucks for a DSL line from the you know the the telephone company, we would have had to charge fifty for the same speeds. And we yep. can't even provide anything that's better than them. It's quite literally the same service. Yeah, yeah. My my dad once explained this to me. Um, my dad ran a telephone company for a good portion of his career. And uh, he once told me that providers who run infrastructure, that is like physical pole infrastructure, the government says they cannot uh, block other providers from using their poles. So if I've got a pole and you're my competitor and you want to run a line on my pole, I cannot tell you no. The government doesn't say how much I'm allowed to charge. Right. So all I have to do is say, yep, you can totally use my poll. It's going to cost you this much per poll, and all I have to do is raise that price to the point where I think it's going to be cost prohibitive for you, and you can't do it. And, and, and that's kind of ridiculous. You know, <laughs> and and that cost prohibitive number is not actually very high if you're talking the per poll cost. Yeah, right. And to put to put new <clears throat> polls in the ground is is eh, pretty much impossible. Yeah, try to put up your own polls. You know, I mean, the, the, the infrastructure that exists now was put up so long ago that it was a thing that you could get done. Nowadays, you probably can't. The infrastructure that's there, unless you, unless it's a new road, you know, new new build-out, um, it's unlikely that you're going to get poles put up. Or in-ground yeah, in cable, you know, whatever. Even if it's a new road, um, the telephone, electric, whoever, like all these utility companies know about these plans Oh, long yeah. before the yeah. general public does. Yeah. And they've already bought those rights. And half of those places they don't want poles because poles are ugly. They want they yep. want underground cable. <laughs> now a way to fix that, of course, would be that all new construction has underground conduit and maybe the, the municipality owns the rights to the conduit. That'd be a different thing. Instead of instead of Verizon owning owning the conduit and saying that nobody else can use it unless they pay them a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, but municipalities don't want to own that infrastructure either. Yeah, even if it's just a hole in the ground, because they have to deal with repairs and yep. maintenance and everything yep. else, and yep. they just don't want to do it. Because they don't already do that with with uh, water and gas lines, right? Yeah, but that's <laughs> water and gas lines are just a pipe in the ground as opposed to 
when you're dealing with something like this is uh, literally a hole in the ground. <laughs> it's yeah, a, it's an is, empty pipe in the ground. <laughs> but this is this becomes different because now you have to have access pathways into it, and you can't just dig up the ground every time a, a cable goes bad, mm. or you have to splice a new connection. Good point. I mean, look at look at the infrastructure in like New York. Um, you know where they're they're pulling manhole covers and they go down, and you know these people are underground constantly. So, yeah, I don't know if I disagree with Tim Cook. I also don't know that I agree with him. It's a tough thing. I mean, it's like anything that requires or that a- any issue where people are pointing to that particular market and saying it needs more regulation, you know, substitute for firearms, substitute for, I don't know, cars, substitute for fuel usage, like all kinds of stuff that uh, the Auto government. Industry is- pretty heavily regulated yeah yeah i guess you're right never mind like there's crazily. a lot of crap you have to comply to put a car on the road crazily regulated. yeah it's, it's also very much a safety issue so yeah mm-hmm. i mean that that makes a lot of sense yeah that's like that's like really direct regulated. life and death safety whereas technology companies aren't life and death but there's no, certainly the technology you don't okay, think so right yeah there are cases but i mean like if Facebook takes all my data and sells it to somebody, it's not necessarily directly life and death. Yes, it could be used to harm me in, in ways. Depends depends who you are. It depends who I am and who gets You're the data. You're part of a different population. You might see that question very differently. Yeah, I guess you got a point there. Got a point there. So, at any rate, um, Tim Cook thinks it's right, so I bet there's at least a, a good percentage of Apple's users who think it's right. It's certainly a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah. You want to talk about Samsung? That's also a conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, this is a, this is an interesting one. So uh, we, we linked a um, an article from Engadget uh, where, they've did, where they've dissected one of these Samsung Galaxy Folds, right? Yeah, that's what it's called. Good. Um, so I don't know if you've heard, Samsung has, and they haven't released it yet, but they have a uh, like a prototype demo, if you will, of uh, a folding smartphone. I don't know that I've seen one of these assembled. The picture so, I'm looking at here is is disassembled. Yeah, it's a disassembled one. So oh, so it is, this was supposed to be, this. these were supposed to be production ready. Um, they sent them out right. to a bunch of reviewers. They're only, they're not quite $2,000 a piece. So, you know, oh, it's not yeah. completely ridiculous. I heard they are um, very expensive. Um, and they were intending, if I understood correctly, they were intending to go to production and start selling them like imminently. Uh, they have, um, pushed back that release slightly, (laughs) uh, because as it turns out, they made a bunch of, um, these things are not exactly the, uh, uh, strongest devices in the world. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, just think about this. And this is the first thought I had when I heard that they were talking about a folding smartphone. Screen technology today, there's no way. There's just no way you're going to make a reliable folding smartphone without a whole bunch of possible problems. I mean, a whole bunch. Right? Just think about it. There's a hinge in the middle of your screen. How are you going to make it seamless, which is look like looks like what they've tried to do here. I'm looking at pictures oh, of it. Oh, it, it, if you, yeah, it, it is seamless when it works. It is absolutely seamless when it works. Yeah, except um, that it looks like there's a crease down the center of the screen, which looks ugly as at- hell. At a certain angle, there is a crease that you can see down the center of the screen. Every review that I've read says that you don't notice it when you're using it. Like yeah. it's it's unnoticeable. So that part of the tech seemed to work. Um, 
but there's a couple of we'll call them issues. Um, and if you read through the the Engadget article that we linked, um, the one the one issue that that popped up that was the first one that I saw was that um, one of the review units ended up with a little bulge in the mm-hmm. screen, which then ended up cracking the screen. Yep. Uh, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. According to the the tear down here, there's nothing preventing dirt or dust or anything from getting into the unit. So yeah. the guess is that that's how that happened. Yeah, they say uh, that it's not a watertight design. So, nope. you know, all the all the strives that have been made toward water-resistant phones is now thrown out the window because we want it to fold in half. <laughs> right. And m- more fun, and, and I mean, I'll be honest, uh, the first picture I saw of this, I, I thought th- this exact thing... Um, when you open the unit for the first time, there's a uh, what appears to be a screen protector on it. You know when you get a new phone, you get that plastic you just pull off? Yeah. It's got that little tab on the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you open up the Galaxy Fold for the first time, it's got a screen protector on it with the little tab up in the corner. Uh-huh. So what did what did most of the reviewers do? Peel off the tab. They, they peeled off the, the, the screen protector. You're not supposed to peel that off. That's a special... Um, uh, I forget what word they use, but basically it's a self-repairing screen, blah, blah, blah thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm. the act of tearing that off destroyed a bunch of screens. Uh, so so now they're putting like a warning or something on it that says, don't pull this off. Don't peel this off. It's there uh, on the purpose. screen is also plastic. Yeah, that, that baffled me. But I, now that I'm seeing the, the screen technology, I guess I understand why it's plastic. It, Right, but let's because let's plastic think back. is bendable, you know. Yeah, but think of back when before you had yeah glass screens. That's that's I mean, my exact. Up really quick. That's my so. problem. That's my problem with a plastic screen. Right, a plastic screen is going to scratch. It's going to nick. Um, bad stuff. This is also the phone itself is also massive. It is humongous. It looks when it's folded. It looks like your standard smartphone, just a bit thicker. It's like very it's, thick. It's narrower than you'd expect for a smartphone. And there's actually an outside screen on it. Yes. Right? So this thing actually, I guess, technically has three screens? Three screens. Or at yep. least one, two screens, one of them being foldable. I would call that two screens. I don't know if it's actually considered one screen or not. Um, but yeah, it's got an external screen, so you can just like pick it up and look at your notifications and whatnot. I don't know how what level of interactability you've got on the outside screen, but it looks like it's a normal screen. You can interact with the phone just like you would. Yeah, it's a normal it's a normal phone screen. I don't know if that I don't know if that screen is glass or not. Um, I don't know. It looks like it probably would be. I hope it is because it's exterior. It's it's an exterior screen. The only saving grace for the plastic screen is that it's inside, right? When you have the thing closed. Right it would be self-protecting, right? So that's a good yeah. thing. I don't know about you, but I, I use my laptop a lot, and, you know, I constantly have to brush dust and Oh, absolutely. If you off, stuff this thing you in know. your pocket, uh, there's going to get lint and all kinds of crap in there, yeah. and it's definitely, I think, going to get scratched up. Um, especially if you live a lifestyle that isn't um, just like a... I don't know what the word. If you, if you live a more rugged lifestyle, like imagine if you're out hiking a lot, or if you're out, you know, if you're crawling under your vehicle, or you know, whatever. If you live a lifestyle that doesn't, it isn't necessarily conducive to keeping your devices clean, right? Right. That's gonna get full of crud, and it's gonna scratch up the screen. And I can't, I can't find a good picture of it, but when you 
when you fold it closed, the the edge of the phone where the hinge is, there's actually a gap. Yeah. It's small, but there's a gap. Whereas the other side of it is is flush. And I, I think it's magnetic and actually holds it closed. Um, so there is ample opportunity for dust to get in there. I'm linking a yeah. Google Google image uh, result in the... Like, there's like 60 pictures here and not one of them is a bit folded. Yeah, I, I oh, just sent you one in the... Found it. Yep. Yeah, so the, the, the hinge side, and maybe it's a much bigger gap than I thought. It's about half the... No, it's a it's almost the width of the USB C connector. Yeah, definitely is so. it's quite a gap. And, and the hinge on the back of it looks like bulky. The whole thing, you're right. Folded closed is yeah. thick, well, thick as hell. The 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 hinge if if I understand correctly, the hinge has to be that way to put the you can't curve it too much. Yeah, it'll crack screen, it or whatever. So. Oh that's cool. So. I found a picture of the display or the display technology, and it's literally just like this flimsy plastic that they're yeah. they're bending in a in a U shape. It's pretty cool. So yeah, there was a there was a foldable television at CES that sort of rolled up from a there was like a, this long box that looked like a, almost looked like a soundbar, and the top of it just rolled up and it was the TV and it was it's the same technology. Yeah, so it's neat. Um, I do want to say that it is definitely a neat technology, and I look forward to seeing where it goes. But as yeah. with most things, the first model looks like it's going to be fraught with peril. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is this is how new stuff gets made. Yeah, so the, I, clearly there's going to be bumps on the road. The the pictures I'm I'm seeing of this prototype, it does look like a damn cool screen. It looks. I mean, there's so much real estate because it's it's essentially like, it's not quite two smartphones. It's not that wide. It's like. I don't know. Probably like one and a half. Like one and a half. It looks or, like it's a thin smartphone. Or one and two thirds. It's wide. I mean, it's like I'm looking. I'm looking right now at a picture of someone holding into their hand, and it's literally as wide as their hand. Like their right. fingers just barely fit around it. And um, for me, thinking about how I use my phone, that seems like it would be problematic, just because one, my hands aren't huge, and two. Um, I'm in a lot of situations where I'm, you know, holding my phone pretty tightly to do a thing because I don't want to drop it in a, a mud puddle or, a, you know, on my garage floor or whatever. But maybe it means that a phone that this delicate just isn't for me. You know, that's all there is to it. I have to I have to consider that when I buy my own buy my my electronics. So anyway, it's neat technology. I'm not trying to bash Samsung. They've had their missteps. Uh, they largely make pretty high quality Android devices um, as Android devices go. So I'm not trying to trash them, but definitely this looks like you know the first model of some pretty cool technology that you may want to be careful with. Yep, neat stuff though. but yeah, this article basically says that the the build is surprisingly delicate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the words they used. Yeah, this is one of those, you know, for $2,000, I would would hope it was a lot yeah. sturdier than what Sorry. it is. Alarmingly fragile is the words they used. Yeah. All right, so that, I think, is all the news. Did you guys sneak some news in there when I wasn't looking? Uh, I didn't. Good. Then off we go.
Look at that. We're done with the news within 30 minutes. Something's wrong there. Something is wrong there. Sorry, I just thought of two announcements we should add. Okay, uh, announcements. So first of all, I kept mentioning that I thought I had set up a uh, Teespring shop for Iron Sysadmin. I did, and now I have the URL. It's in the show notes. Teespring.com slash stores slash Iron Sysadmin. I only have two um, products up there at the moment. One's a t-shirt, like you've seen some of us wear on the show, and one is a coffee mug. <laughs> because why wouldn't you want an Iron Sysadmin coffee mug, guys? Coffee. Am I right? Oh, caffeine is a uh, Sysamin's best friend. Yeah. So uh, Teespring, well, Teespring does bourbon. Teespring does all kinds of media. Um, they can do stickers. They can do uh, t-shirts. Of course, that's that's how they got their start. They can do shirts of all manner of styles: tank tops, t-shirts, whatever. Um, they can also do like leggings and. Um, all kinds of cool stuff. Even, I guess they just recently, now they have swimsuits. So if anybody wants an Iron Sysadmin swimsuit, uh, let me know, and I'll <laughs> I'll get that lined up. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just the coffee mug and the t-shirts for now. I'll probably explore what other options we have and add them to the shop as well. Uh, because, why the heck not? If you guys want to support us by purchasing shirts and whatnot, then uh, whatever you guys want, we'll try to get up there. Uh, the next thing is, I think next week, next Wednesday, is the DEF CON 610 meetup. I'm not sure if I'm going to make it this month, because I've got the Deep Jamboree and then the Summit coming up. So, it'll be kind of busy. Uh, the DEF CON 610 meetup is literally the day before I go for the Jeep Jamboree, so I may be hanging out at home with the kids and stuff. So, shake your head, go ahead, family's important, dude. They can bring the family to the meetup. I could. Other other people bring their children. And and I do. Over the summer, over the summer, I uh, I bring I bring my daughter, my older daughter, to the meetup. But uh, when school is in, I, I don't because you know she'll be up late and whatnot. Hour drive home, all that stuff. And the other thing worth mentioning is the um, the Lehigh Valley AWS Users Group meetup that my coworker runs that's uh not next wednesday but the wednesday after i should probably i should definitely get the date shouldn't i yeah i should try to go to that too shouldn't i definitely should try to go to that let's see here wednesday the first is the defcon 610 meetup and wednesday the eighth which you know would be the first plus seven is uh the lehigh valley aws users group meeting so, both of them at Two Rivers Brewing uh, in Easton. So, if you want to go to either of them, they're both a good time. Go check them out. Great, great food and, and great beverages there. Yes, food and beverages. Al alcoholic and non-alcoholic alike. Yeah, the only problem is uh, under normal, um, normal uh, show recording schedules, the, the Lehigh Valley AWS Users Group, meets the same night we'd be recording, so you won't be able to watch us live. That's terrible. Don't you think? Somebody agree with me. Unless we record it from there. Uh, yeah. We could record it from there. However, this month I'll be at Summit during 
our Wednesday the 8th of uh, May recording, so I don't know how we're going to handle that. I don't know if we're going to skip that show or if I'll just kind of get content from Summit, which might actually happen. I'm not good at that. I'm not I good assume at... what happens is that we'll dither, we'll talk about recording it from your And then hotel we probably room. won't. <laughs> then we'll eventually cancel it half an hour before we would have yeah, gone live, probably. wrecking everybody's evening. I'm just spitballing. That might be what'll happen. Yeah, that's probably what'll happen. No, in fact, I think I have something going on that that night at Summit, so I, I will not be able to record the podcast from Summit, but I may record content from Summit. Hang on, I'm trying Ooh, to look at... Uh, roving podcaster. Yeah, we'll see. Nate's going to do a roving podcaster. Heard it here first. Yeah, we'll so all, I... We'll all be excited to listen. I will be... At the time we would be recording the podcast, I will be bowling with the Red Hat Accelerators next Wednesday. <laughs> Not next Wednesday, the Wednesday after. So, uh, yeah, you know, bowling doesn't make for good podcasting, so I don't know. But I will try to get some content, I think. I'm definitely going to bring the recorder with me. I may even bring... Well, I have my phone, of course, for recording video, but I may bring one of my GoPros that I use for my Jeep endeavors. I don't know if that'll actually be a thing that'll be useful at Summit or not, but I may as well have it. They're small enough and easy to carry in my bag. So we'll see if I can get some content, some interviews, whatever. Um, it's just a thing. I've mentioned this before. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at, like, finding a person to talk to, to interview in person. I'm just, it's out of my comfort zone. I need to get over that, I guess, if I'm, if I'm going to run a podcast, right? So, yeah. You guys have anything fun going on before we get into the main topic? Any fun uh, projects or interesting things you've run across in the past two weeks? I'm, I'm playing with 0MQ. Zero 0MQ. Zero Is that like Ready. another message queue? Yeah, it's uh, uh, sort of a brokerless message queuing system that I'm trying to wrangle to my bidding um, for my, my infamous Skynet project. Instead of using uh, Paramico to SSH and things back and forth, I wanted to actually put in some sort of real messaging layer. Zero MQ, so, is that what it's called? I'm putting it in the show notes. Zero. Zero, like the number? Like, zero. Oh, it's not spelled out? Is it spelled out or no? Yeah. Well, it's spelled out, yeah. Okay. I'm renovating a room to be my new home office. So I'm still building shelves. I sanded some today or yesterday. Oh, good. I see you still don't have any shelves. And I am not painting my office pink. <laughs> that's what you should do while those shelves aren't there man you should paint that dang wall then we can stop making fun of you i'm having enough trouble finding the time to to sand i know the feeling i know the feeling we're we're so the room that i'm in right now that my office is currently in is going to become my kids room so in order to do that i have to vacate my office unfortunately there's no empty rooms at the moment so uh, we had to, like, we're doing this this crazy shuffle where we emptied a room and put all that stuff into storage in a different room that we don't use for anything other than storage. That room's going to get renovated, and then all of my office stuff is going to move there, and then the kids' rooms are going to move here after we paint and renovate this room. And then, you know... Shuffle upon shuffle. The room that we packed up is going to go into one of the kids' old rooms, and then the other kids' room is going to be like a guest room. So, yeah, I'm going to have a whole summer of smelling latex paint fumes, I think is what it comes down to. 
you should just get a shovel and dig yourself a new office. I could. <laughs> you can have the you can have the official the official iron sysadmin bunker. Yeah, good idea, good idea. But no, the new office is mostly done. Uh, we're we're patching up some. Uh, it's you know the house we're in is like fifty years old or so. Now more like seventy years old at this point. And uh, there's just some. It, it, the The whole house was originally done with plasterboard, and over time plasterboard gets like cracks and stuff in it. So we're trying to patch that up before we finish the room. And of course, it's getting a good coat of paint, and we're gonna freshen everything up. And I got myself a new desk. If you guys ever heard of, uh, there's a company makes uh, adjustable stand-up desks called Autonomous. No, probably not. Anyway, it's a desk where you can. Uh, it's got electric motors in it that you can move up and down, and they're not terribly expensive. Uh, I spent like 300 bucks on a on a desk instead of the five or 600 that most adjustable desks are. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that all put together. Then you guys won't have to look at the ugly wood paneling behind me anymore. And the horse. You see my horse? I got a horse. Your 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 video is always so dark that we can't see anything. Well, I can make it darker if you want, and then go dig out my black hoodie. And And we would look at the awesome poster you have, but your head is always in the way. Oh, there you go. How's that? See, now, now you're looking... <laughs> You need the hoodie. Cause that, I need the like, hoodie now. I'm lit up by monitors. Up. <laughs> throw the hoodie up. Turn the, Here, the lights about, off. Here, I'll just put the, the light all the way up. How's that? Is that better? Now I'm all there washed out. <laughs> How's that? Is that better? That's better. Okay. So, uh, the, the other interesting thing that's occurred to me since we recorded last is uh, there's been... A uh, a new position offered to me at work that's been in the in the works for quite a while, and it finally is official. So I am transitioning from senior system administrator, which is a great title and all, to high performance computing system administrator. So it's sort of a new uh, new page in my career. Should be fun. I'm learning all kinds of things about HPC, learning about you know Slurm queues and you know HPC jobs and whatever job cues and things uh, so that's I'm looking forward to it you know there's there's gonna be a, a long transitionary period because there's a lot of stuff that uh, depends on me at the moment that uh, we're trying to figure out how to deal with and uh, Charles is involved in a lot of that because <laughs> a lot of it a lot of his work depends on me <laughs> well you know it, it will be an interesting transition for everybody yeah yeah but I think in the end it'll be it'll be good. So that'll be cool. And I imagine we'll have a lot of projects coming out of that over the next couple of months. They'll be fun to talk about. I'm I'm already working on a few, man. Already working on a few. But yes, you're right. There's going to be a lot of transitions, a lot of migrations, a lot of rethinking of how we've done things in the past to make things a little more efficient or maybe a little easier to manage. Whatever. So yeah, good stuff. I think. Charles, you build any more trains lately or anything else good you want to talk about? Or should we I'm get still, into the... Uh, I'm still redesigning my new layout. Let's just get into the main topic. Sure. Sounds good to me. First, I'm going to drink some of my Imperial Little Break. All right, then.
All right, so last time we recorded, Charles had this great idea for a topic, but then he couldn't make the show, and that's why we talked about hacker movies instead. Which, Charles, you missed a fun show. I think you would have enjoyed but, that. Yeah. But, you know, it's still a great topic. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think I'll just let you introduce this, because I, I, I vaguely understand what you want to talk about, and uh, I've prepared at least some thoughts, but uh, it's really your idea. So if you want to run with it and let us know where you want to go. Yeah, give it a shot. Um, I have a notion about turning this into a conference talk someday, and it's not it's not fully fleshed out in my head. But um, well, when you introduce that talk, when it finally happens, you can play a clip from our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> the, the elevator pitch is imagining failure, and the idea is that we can be very focused, especially through the machinery of say after action reviews of identifying things that went wrong but we don't necessarily anticipate the things that actually actually hurt as the actual failure modes like we de we design against the things we can we design against the problems that we can imagine happening but sometimes i think we're not very good at imagining what will what can and will actually go wrong um for me, a way of introducing this idea is everybody's probably heard of the Titanic disaster. I mean, show hands. I mean, Jason, I don't want to speak for Jason here, but uh, <laughs> who, who is muted? Um, yes, who is muted? What's yeah. what's a, a Titanic? Titanic. That thing yeah. will never sink. Is that? It's, it's, yeah, it'll never sink. Yeah. Unsinkable. They told us it would be unsinkable. Well, you know, funny thing about that is that it wasn't a badly designed ship by any stretch of the imagination. Um, certainly state of the art, um, for 1912, it was built by one of the better shipyards in the world and its crew was probably as good a merchant Navy crew as you would find anywhere on the seas at that time. Her captain was experienced. His officers were experienced. It was the first time that ship had sailed across the Atlantic. Yes, but you know, they're. Probably, I think there were hundreds of ocean liners making that trip all the time. And her sister ship had been at sea for like a year prior. Yeah. And everybody, so mishaps. everybody beats up on the Titanic for having not enough life rafts. But uh, I, I literally just, what are we, like a week or two off from the anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic? I heard about yeah. it. There's a, there's, a, there's a Today in History podcast I listen to in the mornings. It's like a short you know, podcast that plays on my Google Home. But anyway, uh, they mentioned that the Titanic actually had above the 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 required number of life rafts. That's even right. Though, or lifeboats, I should say. Even though that's one of the things that people point to as the reason so many people died, they didn't have enough lifeboats. Well, uh, so and speaking of regulation from earlier. <laughs> well, so here's the interesting thing about that. And that... that helps I'm gonna, gonna actually gonna use that example to illustrate my point in a couple ways perfect the first is that the titanic had above the number of required lifeboats but the lifeboat requirement was based on uh, was a british board of trade regulation that was based on ship tonnage so you know your ship's a certain size you need or i think you need something like that you need to have a certain number of lifeboats right but it had no limit and that upper limit simply had never been revised to take into account, you know, massive ships like the Titanic, which, you know, were over 50,000 tons, you know, 
really bigger than like a World War II battleship. You know, right. Very large, but but um, even then there was another factor in play, which is like obviously everybody knew that there weren't enough lifeboats to hold the entire complement of the ship all at once. And that wasn't considered a problem because what they hadn't imagined was a scenario where a ship like the Titanic would sink by herself. Right. Uh, you know, we think the, we think of the Atlantic ocean as being an empty ocean, but in 1912 it wasn't. And the Britain to New York sea lane was quite heavily traveled. And the assumption was that if a ship got into trouble, there would be other ships that would be on hand to help with the rescue. So, you know, lifeboats would be ferrying people to attending ships. Nobody imagined a, a catastrophe where, you know, something like a ship like the Titanic would sink in a couple of hours and no ship could come to its rescue. Right. But that's what happened. Um, in a, and there's this other interesting failure. Everybody knows about the watertight compartments. Right. You know, you know, certain number of compartments can flood. Well, more than that flooded and the ship sank. Um, the nature of the way the Titanic struck the iceberg was, you know, it's trying, they're trying to, you know, we've all seen the movie. They're trying to avoid the iceberg. They fail. So ship grinds up against the iceberg, grinds up again. So, you know, get lots of, li lots of little holes. It's perforated. Along fairly long fairly long portion of the ship. So it's getting punctured repeatedly. That's kind of a weird way to get, um, to get damaged. Yes. You know, if, if she had just hit the iceberg head on might've survived. I mean, good luck, you know, making that call and dealing with the Monday morning quarterbacking. Why, why didn't you try to avoid it? Yeah, right. Exactly. They did try to avoid it and look where it got them. And you could imagine a scenario where they just rammed it head on. And then what's the after action review going to say? Well, you should have avoided it. You should have it. tried should've, to avoid it. Why didn't you, you do that? Do it would actually cause a catastrophe. <clears throat> yep. But nobody knew that. So to take this from ships to um, system administration, I remember a couple of years ago. Um, so, you know, where we work, we have a pair of data centers that are not fully redundant, but they are more redundant than they used to be. But right. a couple of years ago, I remember somebody, I'm not going to say who it was, um, laughingly asserting that, um, that we'd never lost a data center in its entirety. And uh, it was kind of hard to imagine a situation in which that would happen. Who would say such a thing? And I, I'll just note that since that time, we have lost both data centers, but not at the same time. And that person doesn't say that anymore. <laughs> no, he doesn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, but here's the thing, right? This actually turned out to be the failure mode that hurt us the most and informed a lot of the engineering we did over about a year and a half. And that everybody thought wouldn't happen. Yeah, we just thought it couldn't happen. Yeah. Now, now bear in mind, folks, that these data centers have redundant everything. They have redundant power. They have redundant UPSs. The only thing they don't have is redundant generators. And uh, if I remember correctly, that was what finally got us. <laughs> Well, there was an actual, leaving aside the details, there was some kind of misconfiguration issue that um, took down the one data center, took down AEC. Yeah. Um, that was human error. But still, it's human, it doesn't really matter, yeah, the, right? The, the other was an, was an accident that occurred 
if I remember correctly, in the machine room, not in the data center, but in the like actual machine room in the building that um, had the personnel worried that they were going to find a corpse. <laughs> it had to do with, uh, what was it, a capacitor or something? They thought they were going to find that that one of the people working on the, on the machine at the time had shorted a circuit with their body. And they didn't, luckily. <laughs> But it did, it did, it did take power down to the data center when it shouldn't have, and that was a very bad thing. Yeah. Within within the UPS, if I remember correctly, that yeah, it was DC power they were working with. DC power is a very dangerous thing, folks, especially at the the capacities we're talking about. Anyway, sorry, Charles, continue. <laughs> right. So, and I don't, I don't have a solution, but. And it's it's difficult, right? Because obviously there are a lot of failure modes that you do prepare for. And the result is that you don't even really notice when stuff goes wrong because you've anticipated those situations and they're handled. Um, you know, if you've done your job right, maybe you don't even notice that something, something blipped or something misbehaved because, you know, just services stayed up. Because redundancy um, did what, what redundancy what redundancy was designed to do, and it was a failure scenario you had planned for, and thus it was accommodated for. Right. But there's a whole category of potential failure modes that um, we're not even trying to imagine. Um, like what happens if, for example, we lose both our outgoing internet connections. What do that, we do? That? That'll never happen. It hasn't happened yet. It came right. close once, but it could. Um, and mm -hmm. there, there's uh, another scenario could be that your redundancy has carried you, and you didn't realize that you actually had a fault. That happened that to us happen. once before as well, where so, we have so two having, internet feeds. Yeah, Sorry. having helped design that, they're actually diverse paths. What what happened that you almost lost both? There was a case. I forget the details. There was a case where something had caused one of the internet feeds to not become inoperable, but it wasn't passing traffic. Like, the line wasn't broken, the interface wasn't down, the usual methods in which you would use to monitor these things all said it was fine, but it wasn't or couldn't pass traffic. And then the other one went down. Oh, uh, okay. Gotcha. Right. Yeah, I forget I, what, I've seen that. I forget what the scenario was, but that's what happened. And because of that, you know, that's a thing we didn't plan for. We planned for like, oh, well, can pings get across the line? Is the interface up? Like, these are the things that we monitor. And those were all fine. But it actually couldn't pass traffic for some reason. Or the routes weren't weren't sending traffic that way. I forget what it was. The route table was... was it the Yeah, route? it sounds like a yeah. BGP hiccup of some sort. Yeah, it had something to do with BGP. BGP. The table yeah. was too large or something like that. Ah, uh, okay, yeah. Wow, and the and the was that recently? No, this was years oh. ago. This was oh okay uh, three years ago, four years ago. Uh, really? Those new routers should be able to handle those tables, but okay. It's been it's a been while. A couple, it's been a long years. time since it happened, but it it was after you left. Um, but anyway, um, in fact, I think it was in the transition where we didn't have a network engineer. Surprise! After, yeah, right. Surprise! But at any rate, um. Yeah, that was a thing we didn't plan for. It was a thing we weren't monitoring for. We thought we were fine, and we weren't. So, anyway. Yeah, and, you know, you bring up monitoring. You know, we 
we monitor a lot of stuff, but you know, there's a certain category of obvious things to monitor. And, you know, like, is this website up? Is this router responding? Are these access points up? Then there's a category of things you don't necessarily think to monitor because like, why would you need that information? Um, we never paid attention, for example, we never paid attention to IOSTAT levels on servers until a very memorable incident. Uh, well, it's been a while. That has been Four a while. Years? Four years, five years ago? Yep. This was really fascinating. Um, I'm trying to remember the details, in fact. That's a how colleague long was, was, was temporarily using the SAN to handle the backup system for reasons I don't remember. doesn't matter. Oh, right. And yes. Provisioning right. A bunch of, provisioning a bunch of shares or something on the SAN. So we're talking about many, many writes on the SAN, many, many more writes than you might expect. Um, so the IOSTAT levels on all the servers who had disks on that SAN jumped from, you know, what would be normal, which would be like not even one, you know, like maybe like 0 0.2, 0 0.3, you know, two, five, 10, yeah. 20. It was a, definitely uh, an order of magnitude larger. And what also got pretty cool when it came to say the um, MySQL servers, that meant massively degraded performance because, you know, their disks were affected. So any web application, which also had its disks on the sand, got hit twice because its own operations were slowed down and the database was slow. We chased this for like six hours. Yes. Yeah, I remember there didn't that. Be any explanation for it. Yeah, and, until, then, it, and then you had reached out to a colleague at a different institution. He's like, check IOSTAT. Like, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, like, yeah, well, yeah, you're right, Willie. The number's really high, and it didn't used to be high. That's, yeah, that's that's kind of weird. Now we watch uh, that. <laughs> well, funny, even the person who was doing the provisioning was involved in these discussions, but it didn't even occur to him that, you know, there could be a connection. Exactly, because we we had never had that sort of a performance problem with the network-attached storage, or I should say the uh, the the fiber channel-attached storage, because it is such high-performance disk, we've we just don't have that high performance of a workload ever. And the, now we did. <laughs> now we did. And it was the first time that it happened to us. So, yeah, definitely. Uh, so that's an example. Um, that's a failure mode. And it could have been a lot worse because the provisioning finished maybe 45 minutes after we diagnosed the problem. If we hadn't gotten the answer, it would have just recovered. And we'd have had no idea why. Right. After after his jobs were finished, it would have recovered and we would have been like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> Maybe we would have made the connection at that point, but... Right. Maybe. We probably would have. It would have been hard to dismiss the coincidence, but maybe not. And, and again, that's that would only depend on uh, us making the correlation, right? So... Maybe we would have seen the performance increase, and you and I would not have known that the jobs that he was performing with the backups, the the backup system was finished. And the other interesting thing is that you know we have Nagios, of course, we have Nagios monitoring all our systems. Nagios didn't bark because it was within within whatever tolerance was configured. That's saying the things that was monitoring, you know, which is ping and stuff like that, were fine. 
Right. Um, it, you know, said, yeah, stuff's up. And I'm like, yeah, stuff's up. It's not usable by humans, but it's up. <laughs> well, you know, usable is uh, relative. <laughs> so, so the the no, it was rough. I mean, once once you go through that, the answer is to back go the, then go back to Nagios and start adding IOSTAT checks. Absolutely, and, and other such you know whatever you can think of to to pull those stats, which mm -hmm. are useful over time anyway. They are. Yeah, so that that is a good answer. But I I think the the whole point that Charles is trying to make is that. Making those decisions after it happened, while is a great step forward in improving your redundancy and your resiliency, um, trying to be a little more imaginative in what could go wrong instead of what has gone wrong in the past could help save you in the future. Right. And I mean, a lot of organizations go through this this exercise to begin with when you start looking at single points of failure and and you know designing your disaster recovery strategy. Um, I think more to the point is trying to figure out the the really crazy edge cases that that you know what what's what's the probability of losing both uh, both internet feeds at the same time or or what's the probability of right. of you know your generator exploding when you try to start it or you know et cetera. So um, this reminds me we're we're currently going through um, a risk assessment a security audit risk assessment um, through a uh, security vendor that we've contracted. And this makes me feel like it's a very related topic, right? Um, so that's very related to um, not necessarily uptime and recovery, but it's related to security and privacy, right? So how do you protect your data? How do you protect your network? How do you protect your servers? Uh, what sort of policies do you have in place for this, that, and the other thing? What sort of procedures do you have for all those things? Um, and that's all from a security perspective because uh, data privacy is very important, right? Data breaches are a bad thing, right? But no one does that kind of thing, that I'm aware of anyway, for server resiliency and uptime, right? So maybe I, th I think it seems to me like what Charles is pointing at here is that you need you need need to do a similar exercise except related to you know system system components and uh, resiliency and redundancy right yeah and you need to have you need to have plans for if the unthinkable happens like what's your strategy um what is the plan if we lose both data centers god forbid like at the same time, that'll never happen. <laughs> no, we're screwed now, aren't we? Um, but no, seriously, what's the plan? No, so I mean, we've, in in we've all actually honesty, had discussions like this within web development. Like, how do we, how do we get a college? Like, how do we communicate with campus in some way? Right. So if, uh, we lose both data centers. In all in all honesty, the the previously the answer to that was. If we lost both data centers, then something serious is going on, and we might we may we may not even have a campus to come back to, right? Now, we've seen with the failures that we described just earlier in this show, it is actually a very unlucky possibility that both data centers could be down 
and campus is not has not been hit by a meteor, right? It's and just even that in the event of a meteor, Lafayette has students, alumni, it has an endowment. Yes. We would re, we would rebuild. Right. So my so. my my point is that while jokingly that was always the answer to that question, what if we lost both data centers? Oh well, that probably means that campus is you know has been hit by a meteor, and we have bigger problems, right? That's that's a scapegoat. Like, don't fall back on that. That's that's not a real answer. That answer is, I don't want to deal with this. Right? I don't want to answer that question because I know the answer is not going to be great and it's going to make me do work. So, um, if you've had that discussion and that was your outcome, your outcome was, oh, well, if, the, if both data centers are gone, the business is probably toast anyway, it's not going to matter. Wrong. That's the wrong answer. You know, we, we have a ton of historical data that is of value, uh, even if the college closed, right? There's still data that people are going to want. So You have to start uh, having these discussions when it comes to, okay, so let's imagine a catastrophe like that. Let's assume we can probably eventually recover data, but you know, what are, what's continuity look like? Like, what do you need to establish a foothold somewhere else? Right. Um, what's like, I'm, you know, start thinking, okay, what is our DNS redundant? You know, is there a way to, you know, can we point name servers somewhere else? Um, Can we redeploy our infrastructure somewhere else? Um, You know, we've suddenly lost everything, or at least we've lost access to everything. It's like, okay, you know, like here's a failure mode I've actually spent almost no time thinking about, which is horrific because it's a single point of failure. RCI server is down and can't be recovered. How do I deploy to the web presence? Right. Can I? I think the answer is yes. You could, but, but, I, haven't it, war- but I haven't wargamed it. Yeah, it, it might be outside of your normal procedures, but you probably could do it in some way manually, I would assume. Maybe, but, you know, let's but say no, one's okay, thought no about CI it. server, no... Um, and we've lost our access to our internal packages. Yeah. How quickly can I recreate that capability somewhere else? Right. So Maybe there, pretty quickly. Maybe there not. are the 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 best way to handle this sort of thing from a planning perspective is to do I don't want to call them drills, but uh, planning, do disaster recovery, tabletop exercises. Tabletop maybe? exercises is another way to put that. Uh, basically, cook up something. A meteor has hit campus. Both data centers have been decimated. They're gone. They've been destroyed. Um, what do you do? And then, you know, try to figure out what you would do as a team. And then um, if the outcomes that you come up with are not adequate for either you or the people above you, figure out what to do about that. Decide if that's a very legitimate risk. Would campus ever get hit by a meteor? Is it likely that that would happen? Is it likely that we're going to need this data if it did happen? Or are we all going to be, you know, in the afterlife by then? Right, because face it, if campus were truly hit by a meteor, a good percentage of our staff would be hit by that meteor as well. Yeah, well, you're taking a job on the hill. You're gone, but those of us down in Alpha might still be alive. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Especially if we were reporters instead. Yeah. Um, All the more reason for me to work remote. (laughs) Or at Porter's. Yeah, I mean these are these are hard questions, but it, it can be hard to just justify and advocate for that kind of 
planning because you know there are actual problems right in front of us and here here and now that require our attention yeah but there's... you know on this kind of unplanned work unimagined unplanned work can be incredibly disruptive there's... and it means you're having to think on your feet there's a point where you could describe it as borrowing trouble right so this is a thing that may or may not ever happen and now we're doing work to try to solve a problem that doesn't exist yet but there is a point where that planning could save your bacon because maybe a meteor didn't hit campus but you have a plan for what would happen if both data centers were down and that could apply in lots of other ways right there's there's a there's a benefit in having a thought exercise. I mean, I, w I wouldn't go as far as developing plans for, you know, written plans and, and strategies and everything else for each one of these crazy edge cases. Right. Um, but a generalized BCP um, business continuity plan mm -hmm. that identifies, you know, what level of data loss you're willing to accept and what level of time you're allowed to that you're willing to let pass before you can be back up and running is, is something you do need to be targeting anyway. I mean, that's that's any, any you know, decent company should have a, a well-thought-out BCP identifying those sorts of, of uh, scenarios. Yeah. And, you know, you, you kind of say, you throw it on the wall and you say, like, okay, um, everything's been obliterated, but we have backups of the data. How do we get back up and running? And you build a plan. Um, and you take your common you know, single point of failure scenarios and you build a plan around them. Um, and you, you, you have to, I mean, more to that, you, you actually have to run through those plans um, <laughs> on a regular basis, having the plan and then finding out later on that, Oh, that backup we were relying on never actually got made yeah. is, is kind of a problem. <clears throat> yeah. So we're, um, we're not quite to that level yet. But we're getting we're getting better. We're we're better than you might remember, Jason, from when you worked there. Uh, we have actually started having um, failover testing, where we take things that we know or assume that are redundant, and we actually test that during a window where we've let campus know, hey, we're going to try out our resiliency, and there could be an outage, right? And we actually try it. We see we we try to take you know a hypervisor and rip out its Ethernet, and we try to take our load balancer and knock one of them offline, or we take, you know, services that we think are redundant and take a node out of service, and just see what happens. And the first time we got surprised a few times. Things that we thought were redundant weren't because they weren't configured properly, or there was you know a slight glitch in the software. We found a bug or whatever that had to be patched. And we've solved those, and as we've done that, we've improved our, our resiliency. We've also started having tabletop exercises, not routinely. Um, we've done one or two, I think, to date at this point, where we focused on our ERP. You know, what happens if one of the data centers is gone long-term, not just power outage that we're going to recover from shortly? And, you know, how do we fix that? How do we recover from backups, or how do we make the the pair in the other data center live that sort of thing and to be honest some of the assumptions that we've had for years about how easy it would be to get things back online again uh were wrong you know once we just sat down and talked to the team that managed the application they're like no it doesn't work that way we'd have to do this this and that it, w it might be a day or two before we got it back 
then then the question is is a day or two ex- like is that okay or do we have to cut that down somehow yep yep i've had these same conversations with places that i've worked um, right and they're not they're not simple conversations they're also not um, necessarily fun conversations because a lot of times well, it uncovers things that you thought you were okay and then all of a sudden that pit in your stomach appears. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. oh crap. That's not that's not where I thought it was, and now we need to fix that. Yep. Yep. Fun fun times. I mean, the other the other key to doing like these tabletops is to have actually have a computer there and, and verify some of these facts. You know, oh I, we can pull from this backup. Oh, can you? Uh when's the last time that was taken? Let's go. Hang on. Let's go look at that oh. backup. Uh, maybe we can't. I'm gonna write that down as a thing that we need to fix. Yeah, right, right. And there were there were things like that uncovered. There were there were things like you know in this particular environment, there's like a, a test environment and a and a production environment. Um, you two are both aware of this, but the listeners aren't. And from an infrastructure side, we always assumed that the the path forward to fix this would be to make the test environment prod, backport the prod data into test, and you know it's the same application, right? And the answer was no. It's not that easy. It's not that quick. And no, no, it's not. That was that was kind of a surprise to us. I mean, we, we part of the reason we had the exercise was because we weren't sure, and we just you know we were questioning those assumptions, which is you know another thing you should do from time to time. And we've had shows on that as well. Um, and it was a good thing that we did because you know I, I don't know that it has yet. Proved to improve our uh, our uh, posture, but it was definitely good knowing, you know. And, you know, and some other things. If you're in a small organization, something you have to ask is, who do we need to do this? Um, and then you have to ask, what's the likelihood that that person will be available? Um, and who's their backup? Yeah, who's their backup? Does their does their backup know how to do this? Like, or does their backup even have the access to do this? And you know, if you stuck a script in front of them, they could they could do a thing. Because you know, we're a small team. Sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're traveling. Sometimes we're on a train somewhere. Sometimes we're on a jeep in the middle of the woods. Yep. Sometimes our kid is sick. You know. I remember being in the middle of an outage at a past previous job. We lost the we lost email for a week, which was exciting. And our primary assistant man was restoring the mail server. And this is a week long process. This revealed a lot of fascinating and incorrect assumptions about <laughs> the environment at that place that were all fixed not painfully a, over a multi year process. Not a good time to find that out. <laughs> but here's the thing. I've been there. <laughs> his his wife was due any day with their second child. Oh, gosh. So here he was trying to get email back up, knowing that literally any moment he was going to get that call, which you two are both familiar with, and he was going to have to go. There was, to that organization's credit, there was no discussion about this. Um, He was going to have to go. So as he was doing all this, he was also trying to bring our other system administrator, kind of reading him in a little more on what he might have to step in and do right? Um, if he got that call. As it happens, email got restored, and I think maybe a day later, 
uh, kid was born. And I'm sure that that other sysadmin was like, oh, God, I hope this doesn't happen because I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> it wasn't quite as dire as that, but still, I mean, you know, this is a team that was even smaller than the one of Lafayette, so it would have been, it'd have been tough. Interesting. I have, I have one question and one comment. So, uh, the answer to your first question is yes, it was exchange. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, the first, the, the question is, um, when email went down. Um, did anybody measure the productivity increase across the entire campus? Right. Not, not that I'm aware of. <laughs> um, and, and the comment is, um, guys, if you just had outsourced to Gmail, this wouldn't have been a problem. I'm not sure that was even an option then. Might not have been. 2007? Been. Yeah, I don't think I that was no a thing idea. yet. Yeah. Gmail existed, obviously, but I don't think enterprise Gmail was a thing yet. Yeah. I could Google be wrong. fixes everything. Someone's going to everything. look that up and let us know. That way, when email goes down for a week, you can say, eh, not my problem. It's Gmail's fault. <laughs> I have not surprisingly fallen back on that explanation a few times already since our migration to Gmail. <laughs> what? There's, there is literally nothing else you can say. I'm sorry. sorry. We don't run any of this anymore. Yeah. So you're sorry, guys. That that like crazy custom configuration that I had that made sure that that email didn't get flagged as spam. I can't do that anymore. This is the trade off. <laughs> I think that organization is still self hosting Exchange. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a very masochistic uh, organization. You know what? Is that right? I don't know. I, yeah. I could fall on either side of that of that uh, of that discussion. It, I still uh, there's still a soft spot in my heart for self-hosting your email, but it is a lot of work. And when your team is as small as as ours is, uh, it just didn't make sense anymore. It's just one of those things, you know. You you should call them up and tell them to outsource to to uh, Office three sixty five. That way they can continue with Exchange, but not have it their problem. No, it's still their problem. That's the reason we didn't go that route. <laughs> okay, it's still three quarters their problem. How's that? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Exchange Online did not assume enough of the stack for me to consider it worth it. Oh, it yeah, it, it actually almost makes it harder to yeah. do things. Yeah, where Gmail assumes most of the stack. And, that, and still makes it hard. Uh, so far, it's been good. There've been a couple of those. Sorry, I can't help you. Uh, answers, but yeah. Um, yeah. again, that becomes easier when there's a th when there's a party involved that you literally can't have them change that configuration anymore. You know, which is sad. I always I always hated that answer. Whenever I talked to other institutions that had outsourced to the cloud or outsourced to this software as a service or that other software as a service, and they just fell back on the "it's not my problem anymore." I always hated that, but. Um, I don't know when, when you're at the level that we're at, like experience wise and career wise, and you're still having to manage something as menial as, you know, help desk tickets on email delivery. And there's no help in sight because the team is only so big, um, there's a point where you're just like, screw this. I don't want to do it anymore. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? And it makes a lot more sense to just outsource it to someone who uh, who can manage that because email is essentially just like a utility anymore. That's there's nothing burnout. There's nothing interesting going on in email anymore. I wouldn't call it burnout. Like I'm still very interested in IT. I'm just not. I've done email for literally almost my entire career. I don't know. I get some really interesting fish now. And the the you know that you've seen the one where they they say oh you've been hacked here's the password you've been using we have pictures of you yeah. uh, whatever and send us Bitcoin so the the new version of that that I've seen has been um, where they take they take the passwords that have come out because of password dumps all over the place and they they vary them very slightly you know like increment a number or change an upper a letter to uppercase oh, so or something it's like it's like almost right. Yeah, so the, you know, like what a lot of people do, you know, like my password was password one, but it got packed, so now I use password two, <laughs> and they started sending these variants, and I saw it, and I went, oh, that's that's pretty, that's clever, that's ingenious. You're still spam. <laughs> yeah, but so what you're needling at there though is not that you enjoy running email, it's that. You, oh, I know, I know. It's that you're interested in spam and fish detection. Yeah, I, I, it was just a, I was just riffing on it. Right. I'm actually not interested much in email any, anymore these days. Um, I would love, I would love it if Zimbra would add two factor to the community edition. That would be kind of awesome. But, you know, outside of that, I, yeah. Email's email. Yeah. I even outsourced my personal email. I did that before we, we outsourced the college's email. Wow. You really sold out. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. Call it burnout if you want, but I just got sick of being my own IT guy. I don't know. Like, there's there's certain things where I can learn something new or I can tinker with a really cool new thing or whatever. There's other things where it's just like, oh, the dishwasher's broken again. Well, that's how email felt. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, no, great, I now i got to fix email. Uh, yep, I my you. wife depends on this, too. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I, I moved it to a, a free email hosting provider, and they're probably mining all of my email to sell it to, to, to vendors. But whatever, it's freaking email. You know. Yeah, I think that's probably the one reason I don't do it is because I, I want control over that. But Yeah, and really, that, that was like, me. that was the last thing. That was the last thing where I'm like, look, I, I, I'm not sure if I want to give up this this level of privacy, and eventually I just, I just finally gave in and off it went, went to an email, uh, you know, a, a free email email host. So, anyway, at this point we're rambling and we're off topic. So, uh, did you have any final thoughts on this, Charles, or did you cover it pretty well? I think you covered it pretty well. Yeah. Um... And I say I, this is more just it's a thought experiment that is I don't I don't have an obvious solution, but I think it's something that yeah, it's worth thinking about gaming, you know, figuring out what where where are gaps that aren't covered, which is tough, right? Because you feel like, well, I've covered them. Um, you, know, you think you know what you know. But maybe trying to identify single points of failure, just like asking the question, what happens if this breaks? even if you can think of no reason why that thing should break. Um, what happens if this, if these key personnel aren't available to us for some reason? How deep is our redundancy? Yeah. 
because on any, on any one task, even your most dependable employee will eventually get sick or have a family emergency or be on vacation or whatever. And I've they got won't a, be reachable. I've got a vacation coming up in about a month where I will be out of the country without a laptop. Yeah. My private key is going to be on my phone. So, you know, in a real pinch, I can, <laughs> I can, I can get a shell from there and look at a thing, but realistically I'm off the table for yeah. about 11 days. Yeah. I mean, I, like, you got to do it without me. I spend two weekends a year guiding for, you know, volunteering at a Jeep Jamboree. It's not like in the middle of the day I can pull over and pull out my laptop, you know, when something horrible happens. It, mm-hmm. literally you have to depend on the notes I've taken on how services are configured and the other staff because it's just the way it is. And we're lucky enough that our employer understands that, you know, that people take vacations and that you can't expect them to respond to everything. But I've worked at places that their answer to, to disaster recovery was drag Nate out of bed and get him here. And if he doesn't come in, he's in trouble. <laughs> right. And it's not a fun place to be. So if you don't want to be there, you need to plan for disaster and make sure that you have a, you have a plan that other people can follow. Otherwise, you're going to be flying back from Aruba to fix the, 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 the network down scenario that's <laughs> nobody planned for. Yeah. All right. So I think that's it for tonight. Um, Jason, you had any final thoughts on it? No? Looks like you're distracted by something else. <laughs> No, no. Uh, oh yeah, I'm always distracted. But uh, it's just the way we. No, I mean the 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 whole idea of having these these thought exercises is great. I think it's it's something that everybody should be doing. Um, and if you can integrate it into a an exercise that you run, you know, every other month or once a quarter, um, I think it's it's something that's worth doing. Yeah, we've been doing them. Well, we were doing them twice a year. And then it sort of fell off the schedule, so we need to start doing it again. But uh, the the redundancy testing that I mentioned, we were doing twice a year. And the tabletop exercise was supposed to be a recurring thing, and it didn't happen that way. So we should probably get back on that. But yeah, it's definitely a thing that you should do more than just once and forget about. Um, do them yearly, do them semi-annually, do them quarterly, whatever you can afford. Because that's the other thing. People, resources are a thing. If you don't have a lot of people and you're tying them up with meetings all day long, you know, what do you get out of that? All right, so I think that's it for tonight. Um, Folks, thank you for listening to the show tonight. Uh, If you tuned in on YouTube, I I didn't see anybody in the chat, but I don't know if anybody uh, was watching live or not. If you were, thank you. Um... If you want to watch us live, we are live roughly at 7 p.m. on the f- first and uh, third Wednesday of every month. No, sorry. Second and fourth Wednesday of every month. I'm getting the schedule wrong and everything. It's I blame it on this beer. That, reverse it. I, I blame it on the Imperial Donut Break, which is 11.5%. You wouldn't know it, but I always drink when we do these things. <laughs> Anyway, you can find us at youtube.com slash Podcast. Uh, if you subscribe and hit the notification thing, you'll know you'll notice when we go live. Uh, if you want to chat with us either live or whenever you want to, you can hit us up on our Slack workspace at ironsysadmin.com forward slash Slack. 
Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for Iron Sysadmin on Twitter. We're at Iron Sysadmin on Facebook. Just search for Iron Sysadmin, and you'll find us. I think we're the only things called that. Uh, you can subscribe to us wherever you might find podcasts. Uh, you know, the usual iTunes, Google Play, um, Stitcher. We are there. And uh, don't forget, you can support us via Patreon if you would like to support us monetarily. Patreon.com slash Iron And with that, I think we are done for tonight. You can find me on Twitter at Gangriff. Charles and Jason, you want to let us know where people can find you? I mean, if I have to. If you have to. Find me on the Twitters. You don't have to. On on the Twitters. uh, And I got a blog. Um, So blog.godshell.com. And I'm doing a series on deployment stuff. So um, that's coming out nice and slowly. That's pretty cool. I saw, I think you posted one already. No? Yep. Yep, the uh, the monolithic uh, hobbyist server deployment, and then we'll build on that. Cool. Charles? You can find me at M-A-C-K-E-N-S-E-N on Twitter, where I continue to post about web development, football, and trains. Not necessarily in that order of importance. And sometimes German. Not sometimes. frequently, but sometimes. Or bad movies. Or bad movies. Maybe not bad movies, but... No, bad movies. Less than stellar movies. <laughs> no, they're bad. They're bad. All right, folks, thanks for watching, and we will see you in two weeks, roughly, unless you're at Summit. Then I can meet you in person. If anybody's coming to Summit, let me know, and I'll say hi. All right, good night, folks. Night, all. All right, and that's a wrap. Um, we finally got someone in chat. What's this? I'm sorry, I can't pronounce that. There's too many consonants. <laughs> he says, good chat, gentlemen. Keep up the good work. Thank you very much, Dermasaber. Dermhamasaber? I'm going to have another drink. All right. I don't know if that's going to make it go better. <laughs> good night, everybody. It's it's Durham Saber. <laughs> Durham, thought, like, you know, D-U-R-H-A-M, Durham. I thought maybe Andy, there was a hamster in there. I, I think Lafayette offers remedial English. You can probably take it for free, and since you're beyond the hill, it'll be easier to get to. No? No. Why would I want to do that? Then we'd be like a quality podcast, and that's... Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. And Nate and Nate phones it in on tonight's yeah. Iron Fist <laughs> <laughs>